Please turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll continue our study in Hebrews. And uh, I want to point out two things about the hymn we just sang. <clears throat> First of all, it was written by Elizabeth Prentice. And uh, those of you who don't recognize her name, she wrote the book, Stepping Heavenward, which is the, uh, the focus of the study that our ladies are doing in the morning Bible study. And so she wrote a wonderful novel. She also wrote some wonderful hymns. But another very interesting thing about that hymn <clears throat> and its location in our Trinity hymnal. And that is on 600, page 649, we see the hymn, uh, If Ever I Love Thee, My Jesus Tis Now. And when I sing that, that hymn, sometimes I get these pangs of I don't love him nearly as much as I ought. And then I look across the page and we find more love to the O Christ. And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And it's interesting, the, the reference Pastor Mark made to Philippians 1 praying for sister churches, is that our love might abound in knowledge and discernment so that we might approve that which is excellent and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus. More love to thee. Well, in, <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to continue and, Lord willing, finish this particular chapter this evening. Now, <clears throat> if you're familiar with the book Pilgrim's Progress, uh, you know that it's an allegory about the Christian life. It was written in 1678 by a man named John Bunyan, a Baptist preacher in, in England. Now, parents, if you have not familiarized this, your children with this book, let me urge you to do so. Uh, there's the whole book. There are various versions of Little Children's Progress. There's a video available on YouTube that you can look at for free uh, that tells the story in, in dramatic form. Uh, <clears throat> I think there's animated as well as live action. Uh, but I want you to familiarize your kids with Pilgrim's Progress because it is, the, it is a wonderful allegory of the Christian life, and it is a goldmine of illustrations for preaching about the Christian life. And so I'll refer to various uh, events and various uh, activities in Pilgrim's Progress, and when your kids hear that and they know the story, they go, oh, I know that, and it, it, it helps them pay better attention. And so let me encourage you that with that. Um, <clears throat> Pilgrim's Progress is has been translated in over 200 languages, and it has never been out of print. 1678, 200 languages, never out of print. That's pretty amazing. God's used it in a tremendous way. At the outset of Pilgrim's journey, or Christian's journey, from the, toward the celestial city, he's traveling by himself, and he encounters numerous people and has all manner of conversations, but he doesn't have a companion to travel with him, to share the burdens and the loads with him. But at some point in his journey, he meets a brother named Hopeful, a very sincere Christian who is also on a journey to the celestial city. And uh, Bunyan writes, they entered into a brotherly covenant and agreed to be companions. And so they traveled together facing the trials and the temptations and the tribulations of this life until they reached the Jordan River and crossed over into glory. Now, it's interesting, as you read the story, you recognize that, that, uh, that they each had to persevere through all manner of trials, but they were able to do so encouraged by one another. It emphasizes the importance of Christian community. They were able to encourage one another and profit from the encouragement from their brother. And that's an emphasis that we find in our text this evening. In Hebrews... You recall that it is written to Jewish Christians, many of whom are facing significant trials and temptations themselves, and some are tempted to go back. 
to return to the, the comfortable uh, community, uh, the, the, the acceptable social relationships of Judaism and not be so out of place in this world. And the writer of Hebrews is urging them, press on, persevere, hold fast, take care, don't let go, and don't wander off. And our text this evening begins with what we have embraced as our verse of the month. Uh, This is really late notice. Penelope, do you have time? Can you pop the verse of the month up there for us? Oh, it's already there. Why don't you say it with me? Verses 12, 13, and 14. Here we go. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Keep going. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And I'll continue reading now in verse 15 and following. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And I'll read verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Three major points in my message this evening, not very difficult. Guard your heart, number one. Guard your heart. Number two, guard your brother's heart. And number three, the gravity of the warning contained here. Guard your heart. Guard your brother's heart. The gravity of this warning. So, first of all, guard your own heart. In verse 12, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's important that you and I understand what the Bible teaches about the heart. The heart is the center of who you are. It's the center of your personality. You believe with your heart. You love from your heart. You desire with your heart. You set your heart on those things that you want. Your heart can be fearful. Your heart can be joyful. You, your heart can be discouraged. Your heart can be encouraged. Your heart can be trusting. In Proverbs 3, 5, it says to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Your heart can also be evil and unbelieving, as we read here in verse 12. Uh, lest in, found in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. <clears throat> your heart is your motivational center. Let me say that again. Your motives, what motivates you to do whatever you do, believe whatever you believe, think whatever you think, that comes from your heart. All your desires, all your beliefs, it all resides in your heart. Uh, your heart is like a fountain. In Proverbs 4.23, it says to keep your heart with all vigilance, for flow it, or from it flow the springs of life. Now, that doesn't mean the heart is the source of your life. Rather, it means that every expression of your life flows from your heart. For instance, your virtues and your vices, those reside in your heart. Your faith and your failures originate in your heart. Your love, but also your lethargy. Those are right. Those originate in the heart. 
your diligence or your dereliction and your self-denial or your self-centeredness. These all flow from the heart. It's like a fountain, and whatever is in there comes flowing out. It's your motivational center. Now, it's important that we understand not only is this true, this is what the heart is, but also understand our condition, the condition of our hearts, they're worse than we realize. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So even if you carefully seek to examine your own heart, to know what's in the depths of your heart, it's deceitful, it's desperately sick. It conceals even from you, as it were, sin that is residing there that doesn't want to be discovered, doesn't want to be exposed, because on some level there is a place in our hearts that doesn't want to come clean. Even when we're determined to come clean. We, uh, it, it's interesting, Scripture speaks of being double-minded, and it's kind of double-hearted too, though, right? Uh, but that's, that's the challenge that we face. We have uh, a, a troubled hearts, and be careful. <coughs> if you believe, if, you're, if you think better of yourself than you ought, you run the risk of making some very serious errors, now, we know we ought not to think more highly of our gifts than we ought. That's called self-promotion. We go out and, you know, I can do what others have not recognized that we can do. We need to wait and that, let the Lord promote us rather than promoting ourselves. We shouldn't think more highly of our giftedness than we ought. But we also need to be careful we don't think more highly of our graces than we ought because then we're not willing to question our own motives. I love the definition of humility. There are many good definitions of humility, but one, humility includes a holy self-distrust. I don't fully trust my own motives because I know there's all kinds of stuff in there that I have not fully grasped or or identified and certainly not conquered. So there's a holy self-distrust in a humble heart. So think about this for a minute. King David was called a man after God's own heart, right? You remember the day that the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem and David is out there in the street dancing with all his might before the Lord? He was filled with holy joy. Now, if you had pulled him aside that afternoon and said, David, can you conceive of a day when you will look out and you will see another man's wife bathing and you will send for her and you will commit sexual immorality with her? And David, in fact, when it, when it becomes evident that, that she's pregnant with your child, can you conceive of calling her husband, who is your soldier fighting your battles for you, you'd call him home and you would conspire to put him to death? And I think David would have been shocked and said, there's no way. I would never do anything like that. If you had gone to any one of his companions who knew him well and trusted him implicitly and said, can you imagine David doing such a thing? David would have said, No. Not David, that's impossible. But you and I both know that's exactly what happened. And so our text this evening warns us about our own hearts. Robert Murray McShane, a godly Scottish pastor of the 1800s, said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily feel the tug and the pull to every particular sin. There are some sins I'm just not interested in, and they don't appeal to me very much at all. But there are others that sink their hooks in quite deeply and appeal to my desires, and I have to go to war against those things and against my own desires. But the seed of every sin known to man 
Even things that don't appeal to me right now under the right set of circumstances and the right pressures and all the rest. Look out. Sinclair Ferguson once said, who knows the depths of sin to which we would descend if we were guaranteed immunity from discovery? In other words, if you were guaranteed that nobody could find out, who knows what you might do? That's a scary thought. So take care. Be watchful. How, how wonderful it would be if we all had perfect 2020 vision. We wouldn't need these anymore, right? Uh, it would be great. You're all blurry, and that's a mess. I, you know, there we go. But how wonderful would it be if we had perfect 2020 spiritual vision? The word take care is literally watch, observe. It, it means <clears throat> to look carefully it's your own life. And the problem is we're all afflicted with a degree of spiritual blindness. There are things that we don't see that, that we really should see. We, we need to, to see. But we live with this, some degree of, of spiritual oblivion, unaware of things that reside deeply. There are other things in our lives, we know about them, but it doesn't bother us enough to do something about it. Uh, Jerry Bridges wrote a book a number of years ago. ago. Of course, he's with the Lord now. But he wrote a book called Respectable Sins. You know, we know there are sins out there that are just despicable, and you wouldn't mention them in church, right? <clears throat> but respectable sins, th- sins that, that professing Christians commonly uh, uh, tolerate in our lives, things like discontentment. Did you know that we're commanded to be content in the Lord? Discontentment is, is, is basically being dissatisfied with his provision, and arguing with God. I mean, don't ever be sad or grieve. Discontentment's different. Or unthankfulness or pride or selfishness, lack of self-control, anger, judgmentalism, envy and jealousy, sins of the tongue, worldliness. Those are the chapters. That's the table of contents. But those are <clears throat> sins that have become acceptable or even respectable, or if, if not respectable, at least acceptable in our Christian culture. And they're the reasons Jesus had to go to the cross and die to pay for our sins, to redeem us from all unrighteousness. And all of these sins begin in the heart. Before they ever make their way to your hands or your feet or your tongue or your eyes or your ears, all of the sins originate in your heart. Now, you might acknowledge that these are sinful attitudes. I remember years ago, uh, we had a speaker here who said, how many of you here wrestle with anger? And people sort of giggle, yeah, you know, yeah. And he said, do you realize that anger is a grievous sin before the Lord, and yet we take it lightly as if it were not that big a deal? Jesus calls it murder. It's not acceptable, and it's certainly not respectable. So we have grown accustomed to a certain a, a degree of, of sin. We... we, we, we we make excuses, or maybe you've struggled, you've struggled, you've fought against it, and you've just, you've, you've gotten discouraged, and you just thought, what's the use? I'm never going to overcome this. And so you just kind of accept that there is this level of sin you can't deal with in your heart. And you shrug your shoulders in hopeless resignation, rather than going to Romans 7 and with Paul crying out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the condition of the redeemed human heart. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me 
from this body of death. He longs to love God more, to serve God more, to obey God more completely, to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he recognizes there is often division in his heart. There's often compromise and failure. There are other desires. John Bunyan, in addition to Pilgrim's Progress, he also wrote a book about the Christian life called The Holy War. The Holy War. That's what we're all engaged in if we're serious about following Jesus. So so we're called here, we must be watchful. We must take care. We must look carefully. It's the idea of close observation like a scientist looking through a microscope or a home inspector going through and looking for every single problem he could find in any room or any closet or crawl space. Or a physician doing a very thorough physical exam to see if there's anything wrong. Sin doesn't begin with your hands or your feet or your eyes or your lips. It begins in the heart. So we must look. We must examine, keep our hearts. So so what is it that he tells us to look out for? He says to look out for an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, the full full expression of that is, is an unbeliever who's not trusting Christ at all. But as believers, we can discover evil, unbelief. And there are professed believers like Judas Iscariot who had an evil, unbelieving heart, but he hid it well. I trust that's not the case, but in this room it'd be naive to assume that not a single one of us in here has an evil, unbelieving heart. And that's why we find these kind of commands, these kind of warnings in the Scripture, because it's entirely possible that maybe one of us here And even if it's not a single one, every one of us needs to take heed to this warning. I'll show you why in a few moments. But I want you to think of your life as a tree, a fruit tree. And you go and you look at the fruit, and it's nice and juicy and healthy, and you go, hmm, the root system must be really good. I can't see the roots, but if the fruit is good, then I can assume the roots are fine. If the the fruit is shriveled and ugly, and inedible, you, you would probably assume there's something wrong with the roots, with the soil, uh, the nourishment that it's getting. There's something wrong beneath the surface. And that's exactly the state of our hearts. When there's good fruit, it's because there's something good going on in our hearts. But when there's bad fruit, that's an indication of evil, unbelief on the level of your heart. Now, the fruit of your life is that what you do, what you say, what you think, what you, uh, <clears throat> what, you, uh, what you do, and what you refuse to do or fail to do. But the heart, that's where you have desires. That's where you believe certain things. Now, you might profess to believe the Scripture cover to cover. You might profess to believe our, uh, our Second London Baptist Confession, and, and, and you've studied it, and you've, you, you've, you understand it, and you've explained it, and you've discussed it, and you believe every inch of it. That's our professed theology. Does your functional theology line up with your professed theology? Sometimes we function on an entirely different set of assumptions. Does worry have a hold in your heart? How can we worry if God feeds the birds who are, and you're much more valuable than they are, or he clothes the, 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 the flowers of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow, how can you worry? That's what pagans do. Your father knows what you need before you even, even ask. 
So if worry has a grip on your heart, you're not believing what Jesus told us about our Father's care. Again, that doesn't mean there's never heaviness. Paul talked about the daily burden of concern for all the churches. It doesn't mean we go tripping through life as if there was nothing to be worried about. But it means we cast those cares on the Lord and we entrust them to Him. And we have a degree of contentment and peace in the midst even of very serious, unresolved circumstances. Or if you are discontent. How can we be discontent in the service of such a good king? Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content even in prison. And by the way, that's what Philippians 4.13 is about. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. If you are uh, in living in the grip of discontentment and not dealing with it, you don't believe you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. Your professed theology is not informing your functional theology. Do you see what I'm talking about? Our hearts is where we truly believe what we really believe, our functional theology, and where our desires originate that express themselves in our actions. We clearly are not believing all the things that we profess to believe if we're envious or if we're proud or if we're self-centered or even self-sufficient or self-defensive and all the other selves that go along with that. Uh, We're not believing that which we profess. And on a deeper level, we're believing things that are not true. Our hearts are being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's a troubling place to be. We need to be careful. We need to be very very, uh, uh, clear and, and, and look carefully that we don't allow that dichotomy between what we know to be true and what we function on in our functional theology. That we don't allow sinful desires to bleed over and convince us that the broken systems of this world are more to be desired than the Lord Jesus who's the fountain of living water. So you and I are called to be relentless in this battle against sin. Jesus said, if your right hand offends, cut it off. It's better to go into heaven maimed than to hell with your whole body. If your right eye offends, gouge it out. And he's not talking about self-mutilation. He's talking about getting serious, even radical, dealing with your sin. Give it no quarter. Paul tells us to make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. He tells us to mortify or to put sin to death. No excuses, no passes, no compromises. Deal with sin. And verse 13 speaks of the deceitfulness of sin. It deceives us. I mentioned this uh, in the message two weeks ago. Uh, It tells us all manner of lies like it's not that big a deal. It's not like you're going to go kill anybody. Uh, It's not nearly as bad as what the guy on the street is doing. Or as long as nobody knows, what does it matter? Again, going back to Ferguson's quote, who knows how far we might go if we're guaranteed immunity from discovery. Or you deserve a little enjoyment. You deserve a break today. I'm not saying going to McDonald's is sin, by the way, necessarily. Uh, You have a right to be angry and to give full vent to that anger. Look what this person did to you or said to you or whatever. Or sin tells us just this once, Kind of like my dog. Uh, I sit in my study, and the dog comes up and drops the ball on my, uh, in front of me, and, and he wants me to throw it out the door against the wall, and it goes down the steps, and she flies down there at unbelievable breakneck speed, and she's back in 10 seconds over and over 
and over and over again. That's what sin does. It might say just this once, not a chance. I got to close the door so the dog won't come back in there. Make no provision for the flesh. Or once it's just this once and you've given in, then it's just one more time. Just, just one more time. And we all know how that turns out. Or you can keep your sin confined to one area and it won't bleed over into other areas and it won't grow. You can manage it. Or other Christians, other people who profess to be Christians, mature Christians, they're doing the very same thing. There's a wonderful book by Thomas Brooks called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. Uh, it's a Puritan paperback, but it's also free. It's a free download ebook on monergism.com. If you don't remember that, come back and ask me. There's 900, 900 free ebooks on monergism.com that are of great value, mostly Puritan works. But in Precious Remedies, he says one of, the re- one of the devices that Satan uses to dr- make the soul careless about sin is he says he shows you other Christians' sins and he hides their repentance. We see other Christians who are bold to sin, but we don't see their heartbroken tears of repentance later. And so we think, oh, I guess it's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. And we need to believe that. Uh, by the way, that's a, a very valuable book. The, the table of contents will blow you away. All the list of Satan's devices and these biblical remedies for them. And then you read the book and it unpacks them and it's, 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 it's pure gold. Not scripture pure gold, but it's good. All right? In John Owen, in his book, Mortification of Sin, he says this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's that serious. In fact, Owen gives nine <coughs> instructions for killing sin. I'm going to say them briefly. If you want to get them from me later, I'll be happy to share them with you. First, diagnose sin severity. Recognize it's not a small thing. Secondly, grasp its serious consequences. If you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you're going to reap corruption. And it's serious. Thirdly, be convinced of your guilt. I did it. I have to own it. And I'm guilty because of what I've done. Fourthly, earnestly desire deliverance. Don't get comfortable with sin. Long, cry out with Paul, wretched man, that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Fifthly, consider the relationship between your sins and your natural temperament. In other words, ask yourself the question, where am I more prone? Where does temptation have a greater tug at my heart? Those are places I need to be more careful and avoid more diligently. Other areas where it's it's not a problem uh, then it's not as much a, a concern. For instance, if you have a long history of thievery, even if you've repented of that, but it's still a, a really strong, de- please don't sign up to be a money counter for our church. That just makes no sense, right? You get the point. Avoid occasions that incite sin. Again, Paul said to make no provision for the flesh. Don't put yourself in situation. Situations in which you're going to be vulnerable and particularly tempted. Seventhly, address sin's very first signs. What are the, what are the, go back and look if you've struggled with the same sin over and over again. Look at the process. What was the very first thing that switched my attention from whatever it was of following Christ to, hmm, oh. And then desire starts to kick in. And then the snowball starts rolling down the hill, and pretty soon you've reached a point of no return. The point of no return isn't where you need to look. You need to look at that very first trigger that got you interested, 
that, that snag your attention and your heart. Go there first. Deal with that. Meditate, eighthly, meditate on God's glory, and it will reveal for you the ugliness of sin. If, we, if we're attracted to the wonders and beauty of Christ, sin loses its luster. And then finally, don't rush to comfort yourself. In other words, don't short-circuit conviction. Now, we want to run to the cross, but that doesn't mean, uh, oh, man, I did this, you know, and, and, and we immediately run to Jesus, and we don't think about the weight of our sin, and we don't allow conviction to have its real impact on our lives. Now, I'm not saying wallow. Owen also said, or excuse me, McShane also said, for every look at your own sin, look, take 10 looks at Jesus, and I absolutely believe that. But make sure you look at your sin clearly. Well, it's vital that we do battle against sin. And here's the reason it matters so much, because the consequences of an evil, unbelieving heart, it leads you to fall away from the living God. Now, again, we've said this numerous times. We'll say it again. A real Christian cannot lose his salvation. A professed Christian who is careless about his sin probably is not a real Christian. There are people who are self-deceived, and there are people who deceive others. And these warnings are here to Help us make sure that that's not us. Make sure that's not you by guarding your heart. If you ignore that evil, unbelieving heart, that is a potentially fatal condition. And falling away doesn't happen in an instant like a sudden departure. It may appear sudden. Somebody may appear to be upstanding and fine and all the rest, and suddenly they completely departed. And you're like, how did that happen? It happened very slowly. They just didn't tell you. In most cases, that unbelief and that, that cherishing and hiding and treasuring up of sin was going on under the, under the surface for quite some time. And finally, it hit that trigger, and they departed. Christian. Take care, watchful, guard your heart, but also guard your brother's heart. It says in verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I asked the question in my, in my title, I said, my brother's keeper. And again, it goes back to the question that Cain asked of Abel or asked of God. When God says, Cain, where's your brother? Cain knows good and well where his brother is. He killed him and buried him. And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Trying to hide his sin. Now, my use of that phrase is not to hide our sin. It's to recognize that, yes, we have a responsibility for one another. We're called to exhort one another every day. Now, one of the most popular verses in the entire Bible for people who don't particularly want to live under God's law is Matthew 7, verse 1. They don't know anything else but this two first two words of this verse, which are judge not. And they might even know, judge not lest you be judged. And they might even know, and the same stand, for the same standard you use to judge others, you will be judged by that standard. But they stop there. And maybe, just maybe, they go to the next verse. Says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you got a log in your own eye? But that's when they do stop. Because Jesus does not tell you, mind your own business, leave the speck in your brother's eye, and let him go blind. It's not your business. He says, get the log out of your own eye first. Deal with your own sin and your own hypocrisy so that you may see clearly to remove the, the speck from your brother's eye because it matters. You are his keeper, 
And if God has brought that speck to your attention, you now have a responsibility in love to deal with it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, Beloved, if any of you is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him with a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you, do, you too be tempted. If, if, if you have discovered sin in a brother or sister's heart, God has brought it to your attention because he wants you to help them with kindness, with tenderness, with gentleness. But deal with your own heart first. So, so what does it look like to exhort one another daily? Well, this is one of many one another instructions that we find in the New Testament. I think there are over 30. I've, I've counted them before. and We have a handout that we use as part of our, uh, our membership immersion that lists all the one another's. Love one another appears 10 times, but I think there are 35 distinct one another instructions in the New Testament. Things like honor one another, love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, and exhort one another. See, we were not intended to live in isolation from one another. We were called to meaningful Christian community. And your sin and your shame will say, hide. Don't bring it out into the light. Hide in the shadows. You don't want anybody to see because they'll think something terrible of you. Well, 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all sin. Meaning, you don't have to get it all cleaned up before you come out in the light. It's in the light, in fellowship, in community with God's people that we are able to deal honestly, humbly, and redemptively with our sin and find the encouragement and the help that we need to overcome it. That word exhort that appears here in verse 13 is my favorite personal ministry term in the Bible. It, it, the Greek word is parakaleo. I, I, I don't mention Greek words a lot, but you recognize the word paraclete, speaking of the Holy Spirit. It means one called alongside. In fact, in 1 John 2, 2, it says uh, in verse 1, I write these things that you may not sin, but verse 2 says, but if you do sin, we have a paraclete or an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In that case, paraclete speaks of a defense attorney. It's one who is called alongside. That's what the word literally means, paraclete, called alongside. He's called alongside to meet the need of the moment. And in the moment that you're guilty of sin, you need an advocate before the Father, pleading his own blood. But we are paracletes to one another. We are to enter into personal ministry according to the need of the moment. And here, the ESV translators use the word exhort. In, in, the, in Romans 12.1, I think ESV also says, I exhort you, brothers. But Paul, uh, or excuse me, NIV says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. But it can mean encouragement. It can mean comfort. It can mean counsel. It can mean exhort. It can, it's a very flexible term that says, come alongside and meet the need of the moment. Get involved in each other's lives in fruitful and effective and productive and spiritually enriching ways. It has a significant motivational component that perfectly addresses the heart, which is the center of motivation. So we're called to come alongside, to, to, to move toward and draw near to one another, and to motivate each other to be more watchful, to be more faithful, to be more hopeful and trusting in the Lord, and to persevere. Now, you can't do that with everybody in the room, right? There, there's no way you can be deeply, deeply involved in lots of people's lives. But there are a few 
and we all need to be. And we need to let them into our lives as well. It cannot be a one-way street. As pastors, Pastor Mark and I and Pastor Scott, uh, we are called to exhort you, but we need you to exhort us too because we can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin as well. And so it, it has to be a mutual ministry. Now, now, this isn't a license to be a busybody. This is a call to be genuinely helpful and to be uh, encouraging and building up, to build up in kindness and humility and gentleness in patience bearing with one another. Because I don't know about you, but change for me takes time. My wife doesn't generally see that when she tells me, here's something that needs to be changed, and I immediately change and never go back to it again. It, it takes time. And she is this, uh, she's a paragon of patience to put up with me all these years. But we're called to be patient with one another, to bear with one another, to continue to encourage daily as long as it's called today. As long as the need is there, we're to do it. Now, what is that what might this exhortation look like? It depends on what the need is. If someone's working on overcoming a sin that has deep roots in their lives and in their habits, it might involve a very high degree of accountability. And it might even be everyday accountability at first. It shouldn't be everyday forever because there should be a measure of growth where you don't need to check in every day, maybe once a week and then once a month and maybe every few months over time. But that availability to say, I am with you in this fight. I'm praying for you, and I'm happy to talk with you about it and give you accountability. Sometimes it's support and it's encouragement, like standing on the side, uh, sidelines while a brother or sister is running their race, and we're encouraging them on in that race. Or maybe it's warning. Brother, you may not recognize this, but this is dangerous. You're being careless about something that really could jump up and bite you. And I just urge you, stop and take a look. You're playing with fire. Uh, it may look like comfort. Someone is just discouraged. They feel slap, worn out. And so Hebrews tells us to strengthen the, feeb the, the, the feeble knees and raise up the weak hands. That is encouragement. Whatever form it needs to take, it means we get involved in each other's lives in meaningful ways. And we do so patiently, gently, because change takes time. And again, it's mutual. I'm called to exhort and encourage, and so are you. And we both need to give it, and we both need to receive it. Jeremiah 17, 9 describes my heart. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And if we don't realize that, we're, 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 we're not exercising 2020 spiritual vision. We're denying what the scriptures teach. You know, our natural inclination, isn't it, is to keep to ourselves. Oh, I don't want to butt in. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to uh, uh, make somebody else feel uncomfortable. I'm just going to mind my own business. Oh, if it's my own sin, we hide because of shame. Uh, Satan's strategy, you've heard divide and conquer. Well, his strategy in this vein is to isolate and eliminate if he can get you off by yourself, he can beat you to a pulp, isolate and eliminate. And we're called to move toward one another so that can't happen. And the power of this consistent encouragement and this consistent exhortation, it is a, a protection against the hardening and the deceitful influences of sin. 
One of the things I'm very thankful for about being one of the pastors here at this church or being a part of this church is because, by and large, we're not naive about sin. I think in general, our people have a good understanding of sin and what the battle of sin looks like and what it needs to look like. So we're not shocked when somebody, we find out somebody's struggling with sin because there's nothing that you need that I don't need just as much. And so we're able to deal with sin redemptively, mercifully, humbly, kindly. We're committed to encourage one another and exhort one another. I've said this many times, and I'll say it again tonight. I want Grace Baptist Church to be a place where it is always safe to repent of sin. I don't want to be a place where it's safe to hide your sin, but it's always safe to come clean, to repent and to seek assistance in overcoming sin. That's what a church must be. Now, we don't want to simply say, oh yeah, we're all sinful. You know, of course, you know, sin is is in every one of us and uh, that's just a reality. And we, you know, we don't want to be blase about it. We should be crying out with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me with this, from this body of death? Would you help me? And would you help me? Ultimately, it's Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. But he's given us one another to exhort us daily, as long as it's called a day, to help each other to run this race marked out before us. And if you fail to encourage others, And if you fail to receive that encouragement, there's the danger that our hearts can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We can get the idea that somehow we're exempt from its consequences. What's the opposite of hardened heart? It's a tender heart, right? And we think of being tender-hearted as how we deal with other people. Do you think about a tender heart toward the Lord? It means a heart that delights in communion with Him. A heart that responds to those first movings of his spirit as he convicts you of sin or as he uh, brings to your mind a holy duty and you want to do that. I'm not saying that he's revealing new truth to us in some prophetic manner, but as he illumines our minds with the scriptures, as he brings conviction, as he shows you opportunities and you move quickly responding to those early promptings of the spirit lest you grieve the Spirit and quench the Spirit and harden your heart. We set our hearts on Christ. We set our hearts on communion with Christ, on the glory of Christ, the the beauty of Christ, that He's a fountain of living water. And cherishing Him, sin loses its luster. That's how we maintain this tender heart toward the Lord. Well, let's, in the moments we have remaining, consider the gravity of this warning. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. He's saying here, this is a matter of spiritual life and death. That's not overstating the matter. He says, if we persevere to the end, that's evidence that we have come to share in Christ. But if we do not persevere to the end, it's because we have not come to share in Christ. So make sure that you're not one who falls away. Jesus said at the end of Matthew 7, by the way, the chapter where he starts out with judge not, At the end of chapter 7, he says, many will say to me on that date, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform many miracles? It's interesting, all three of those things they claim are miraculous. 
sensational phenomenon. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't do those things. He doesn't say, you did, but you did it by the power of the enemy. He doesn't address that at all. He simply says, on that day, I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Not, I used to know you, but you fell away. I never knew you. Sobering words. Now, I, I want to look at these two terms very closely here, in, 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 or more closely here in verse 14. He says, we have come to share in Christ. That simply means we're Christians. We are in Christ. We've been redeemed by his blood, and we are assured of eternal life, and we have all the benefits that flow from faith in Jesus Christ. We've come to share in him. But then he says also, he speaks of that confidence to which we're to hold firm. That word confidence, it's the idea of firm foundations. It's the stability that we have that is the, the fruit of a vital faith in Christ. The psalmist writes in Psalm 62 of God, while the psalmist is under attack, he says, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. That confidence, that that stability that says, I will not be shaken because God is holding on to me. That's what we're to hold on to. We're to hold fast that confidence that I will not be shaken. I will not be pulled away. I will not be defeated because there's nothing in heaven and earth that can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. That's our confidence, and we must hold fast to it. It's not, this is a burden, you just got to hang on to it. You put your hand to the plow and don't look back no matter how hard it gets. No, this is the benefit of the Christian life. It's like you have this treasure. Guard it carefully. Don't let it out of your sight. Don't let it be taken away, and don't lose it. Confidence. But I want you to see that it is a conditional statement if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, we can, again, we can jump immediately to that assurance and say, well, a real Christian can't lose his salvation. Let's talk about something else. And we're short circuiting the, the purpose of this verse. We blunt the force of the warning. Every single one of us who reads this verse should take this warning seriously. If we simply say, well, I have assurance of my salvation. That could never happen to me. Well, I think David had assurance of salvation, but look what happened to him because he wasn't watchful. And even if you don't ultimately fall away, you sure don't want to fall as far as David did. You don't want to fall at all. If we fail to appreciate the gravity of the warning, if we fail to anticipate the impact of this condition of a sinful, unbelieving heart, if we fail to appropriate the motivation that we need to hold fast and to persevere that is embedded in this warning, then we fail to recognize what it's here for. But we're to hear this warning, read this warning, heed this warning, and appropriate it so it motivates us to persevere. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to look at this next week, but just, just, just look at this. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, the promise, which means, which means I'm secure, means I don't have to worry about it, right? While the promise still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, we're going to talk about what that means next week, but it sure doesn't mean relax and don't worry about it. You know it doesn't mean that. So to illustrate, the author refers to the failures of the Hebrews, and we'll deal with this very quickly. 
in verses 7 through 11, we have these direct quotations taken from Psalm 95. And now he gives us a commentary on those verses in sort of a Q&A format. He sets up the illustration in verse 15. As it said, he refers back, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then he follows up with application questions. To whom do these words apply? Well, he says in verse 16, who heard and yet rebelled? All those who left Egypt, led by Moses. What was their problem? Was it bad teaching? No, Moses taught them the truth. Moses received the very law of God and spoke it faithfully to them. They knew what they were supposed to do. Was it some failure on God's part? No. God judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and they saw what God would do to those who defied him. Somehow assumed that he wouldn't do that to them. They saw how God provided for them as he led them out of Egypt, and the Egyptians not only said, go, get out of here, take all of our riches, take our gold and our silver treasures, and just just go. And they got to the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry land. And every day they looked up and they see a pillar of cloud leading them where to go. And at night, a pillar of fire showing them again, God is with us. And they stood at the base of Mount Sinai and they saw the the rumbling and the fire and the thunder as Moses went and received the word of God. They knew God was in their midst. And when they came to the very edge of the promised land and the spies came back and said, we were like grasshoppers. We can't do this. They mutinied. And they said, has God brought us out in this wilderness to kill us. What is that if it's not an evil heart of unbelief? They did not believe the promise of God that you would enter his rest. And so he said, well, you will not enter my rest. All those who left Egypt perished in the wilderness, except for Caleb and Jonathan. Excuse me, Joshua and Caleb. Verse 16 says, who heard and yet rebelled? It's all those who were led by Egypt, who are led by Moses who had all these incredible experiences of God's faithfulness, and yet they rebelled. Verse 17, with whom was God provoked for 40 years? It was those who sinned. God's judgment was justified because of their unbelief and because of their rebellion, because of their sin. And so their bodies fell in the desert when they could have, if they trusted the Lord, taken the land. They were on the border, and they gave in to fear and refused to trust God. And they even accused Moses, why did you bring us out here just to die? It's very interesting. Tom Schreiner in his commentary says, they sinned against God because they feared death. You can fill in the second half. And they experienced death in the wilderness because they did not do what God had told them to do. They were afraid of death, so they feared to obey God when they should have feared God, and he would have preserved them. They were members of the covenant community, the old covenant, but they didn't enter. They died in the the desert. In the final sentence in verse 18, God swore they would never enter his rest. To whom did he pronounce that sentence? It was those who were disobedient. And if God judged their disobedience, how can we be so presumptuous as to believe he would tolerate our own? As it says in Hebrews 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a, a salvation? Verse 19 says they were unable to enter because of their un belief. Now, you might say, oh, wait a minute, Pastor Jamie. I thought they were unable to enter in because of their sin and their rebellion. Where did the sin and rebellion come from? It came from evil, unbelieving hearts. The fruit of their sin revealed the root 
of unbelief. And you might say, well, how did that unbelief creep into their hearts when they saw all these miracles of God? It didn't creep into their hearts. It was there the whole time. And the pressure of the wilderness, like squeezing a toothpaste tube, whatever's inside is going to come out. And when the pressure was on, that unbelief came out. And rather than repenting of it, they doubled down, and they bowed their necks against the Lord, and they perished. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, you might go back and read that, not right now, but Paul is using the very same example of Israel's failures, all these spiritual privileges they had, and yet they rebelled and they rejected God and were rejected by him. And in verse 6, in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, now these things happened to them, or these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Learn from their mistakes. Don't make your own. It hurts too much, I promise. But in verse 10, Corinthians 10, same chapter, verse 12, it says this. It says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. David thought he stood. David never imagined he would descend to the depths that he did. Christians, please don't say it'll never happen to me. It could never happen to me. Rather, run to Christ. Flee to Christ. Examine your heart. Hold fast that confidence you had at the beginning. Don't let go of it. But recognize it's not an excuse for complacency. Run to Christ and hold fast to the Lord Jesus every day of your life. Again, that word confidence, it's, it's, it's a steadfastness that's the fruit of a vital faith in Jesus Christ. And you might be sitting there tonight and go, well, Pastor Jamie, I, I don't think I have that kind of faith. I, I'm all over the map. And I'm not sure I'm really trusting in Christ. Well, he invites you to come. Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You reject him, you'll never enter that rest. But he says, come, I'll give you rest. I don't know. I mean, coming to, am, I, am I allowed to come to Jesus? I didn't think I was, by the way. 14 years old, I, I thought he was going, nope, nope, not you. Anybody but you, not you. I read something, I think it was by McShane yesterday, where he said, the Lord never tells us to discern whether or not we're elect in order to come to Christ. He says, you come to Christ. You're welcome. That's the question. You're invited. I will, I will receive you. All who will come to me, I will never drive out. Jesus died on the cross to pay for those very sins and for that very unbelief. And so I would urge you, if you're not in Christ, you don't have that, you don't, you don't partake of Christ, you don't have that confidence, that steadfastness we're talking about, you can receive that from him, even tonight. The confidence that we have, that steadfastness, it's something, it's a gift, precious gift that is the fruit of a vital faith in Christ he gives to us. Not presumption. Doesn't make us complacent. It motivates us to hold fast and to persevere in faith and to put sin to death. So two things. How do you respond? Number one, you hold fast to the confidence. God is my refuge. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Mark it down and hang on tight. And secondly, encourage or exhort one another daily. Not only are you to be watchful, but you're to help others be watchful also. In Pilgrim's Progress, I would encourage you, again, read these to your children. Read them yourselves. Read it yourselves. Pay attention to those conversations between Christian and hopeful. 
about how they're bringing the scriptures to bear on the situations of, their, of their, the challenges of their road to the celestial city and helping each other think biblically about those challenges and inspiring hope in one another. They're tremendous examples to, for us to learn how to motivate and encourage and exhort one another that we might inspire hope and true encouragement.